Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. Just recently I was at a wedding and uh, happened to sit next to uh, a guest and we got um, talking and I found out that um, he uh, went to Newcastle Uni and then started the same uh, year I did back in 1964 and we compared uh, notes and were um, you know checking who we remembered being in our classes and so forth. It was really, really great to catch up. And that followed on. It turned out that later on this person had become the principal of the high school that I had attended many years before. And that again reminded me of, um, and we again compared names, what the original principal was because the school that I went to, I was in the first intake at that, it was brand, of that brand new high school. And I remember the, uh, the first uh, science master there. And I, I topped science uh, in, the, in the A class. And I remember the teacher didn't have a special prize, but he gave me a, a book, uh, one of the science books that he'd picked up uh, at a uh, conference from a fam- uh, that had been written by a famous Australian physicist. And he gave that to me as a prize. And, and that was very encouraging. And as I recall and thought about this, I remember learning about the theory of the origin of the solar system and the origin of the solar system that we were taught back then was that there was originally this orbiting cloud of dust that was orbiting and uh, gradually this this cloud uh, condensed and the, formed the Earth and the different planets formed as this big rotating cloud of dust condensed. And, of course, this is known as the uh, condensation uh, theory. And um, I found out fairly recently, of course, that it was actually uh, proposed, um, uh, you know, back you know, many years earlier, of course, um, as a, a possible explanation. Uh, for how the moon formed. So you had the, the moon formed as this condensing cloud of, of dust as um, gravity pulled the tiny particles together. Well, of course, we know actually that that doesn't uh, work uh, really well, but there are major problems with a number of theories uh, with the Earth. Another theory was, um, uh, was that originally the Earth was this molten blob that spun really fast and it flew off a smaller blob as it ran around, a little blob flew off. And this is known as uh, the fission theory. And, of course, uh, it was interesting to read that this was actually proposed by George uh, Darwin, the son of Charles Darwin. But it's interesting when we look at these uh, theories that they actually don't fit the science for example, um, calculations that have been done show that the Earth's rotational speed would never have been great enough to actually fling off a small particle that would have formed the um, moon. Another problem is the marked differences between the rocks that are found on the moon and those on the Earth. So, uh, again, with the 
condensation theory, um, we would uh, expect the moon to be like a mini-Earth um, that is made up of essentially the same minerals and have a similar composition of the Earth. So if the, as I said, this theory that I was taught back in school in the, uh, and it would have been the late 1950s, 1959, 1960, around that time, the composition if it was this dust cloud then we would have expected all these planets to have roughly the same composition but we know they're vastly different and of course the moon is significantly less dense than the earth and we know that it's made up of quite different materials um, and it seems and we don't know for sure scientists don't know for sure but this explanation of the vast difference in density um, is attributed by scientists to the fact that it's evidence that the Earth has this very heavy core, possibly an iron-silicon-type core, uh, whereas the Moon must have a much smaller um, iron-type uh, mineral uh, core. If we go then to the uh, fission theory, as I said, we would um, have expected that the, the composition of the Earth, of, of the Moon rather, would be very similar. Uh, but when we look at the elements, for example, potassium and sodium are found in abundance in the Earth's rocks, but not very much in the rocks on the Moon. Um, conversely, the, the Moon rocks contain significantly more aluminium, calcium and thorium. So this is you know, a major problem for the fission theory and it's also a problem for the condensation theory. Another good reason for rejecting this fission theory or the, the split off, you know, that this blob um, thing is um, the moon's orbital path. Um, we would expect the moon to uh, orbit, if this theory is correct, we'd expect the moon to just simply orbit around the Earth's equator, but it doesn't. So it's fascinating that when we look at these, you know, different theories to try and explain the origin of the, the Earth, these are the, the common ones that were, were taught um, to the people that went on to become, you know, the science teachers and university professors and so forth, um, that they actually don't fit the, the data. Then, of course, there's um, another one... Um, the, that the moon came from outer space. And, of course, this is what um, a number of scientists call on at, at, different, at different times. So I remember seeing an interview with uh, Richard Dawkins, the really uh, strongly outspoken proponent of evolution, and when he was pressed was, you know, for saying, well, you know, how did life originally form? Because we know from the, the science from the chemistry underpinning life processes that it's absolutely impossible for a living cell to arise for, from non-living non -living chemicals. Um, for example, recently I um, watched a, uh, a talk by James uh, Tour, Dr James Tour, who's a professor at uh, Rice University, this world-leading science that builds molecular machines. And... One of the things that he was pointing out on his talk was that um, with the best scientific 
technology and equipment and our best skills and knowledge, we still can't assemble the molecules to form the envelope of a simple cell. And that envelope is essential to protect and preserve the biochemical process and biochemistry that would go on inside a living organism. So what he's saying is that the way these molecules have to be assembled, even with our best skills today, we couldn't assemble them. And so we have this overwhelming evidence that you know, life can just not form by itself. And so, again, when Richard Dawkins was pressed about this point by the interviewer, he said, well, maybe it came from outer space, you know. Well, it doesn't really change things because we work on the assumption that the chemistry in outer space operates the same as the chemistry we would observe here on Earth. But again, they've tried this explanation for the origin of the moon. And some have argued that the moon must have formed elsewhere And as it flew through the galaxy, it just happened to pass close enough to the Earth to be captured by Earth's gravity. But again, if this were the case, we would expect the Moon to follow an elongated orbit, a sort of an elliptical sort of orbit, orbit um, or a very elongated orbit, more like that of uh, Halley's Comet around the Sun. But... um, the moon's orbit is essentially circular. So again, the, this theory um, fails. Now, at the present time, probably the most popular theory for the origin of the Earth, uh, origin of the moon, sorry, is that um, there was some great impact. And this is the most popular theory among evolutionists today and so it holds that there was a hypothetical uh, planet uh, they even give it a name Thea that collided with the earth and the resulting debris formed the the moon and this is said to explain the difference for example between the earth's rocks and the moon rocks that I've mentioned um, just a moment ago and essentially what they argued that uh, the high um, temperatures that um, would have been generated by the impact, this, all this kinetic energy, part of it would have been converted into heat energy, uh, would have boiled away um, the volatile elements such as potassium and sodium. That's what they say off the, off the moon. Um, and left the more heat-resistant minerals like the aluminium, calcium and thorium. So that's their explanation to explain the different mineral uh, composition. Um, But, and that leads to problems, that what about the similarities between the the rocks? Um, And this is a major problem, looking then at, okay, there, there are a lot of similar rocks between the moon and the earth. And with the impact theory, part of the moon would have formed from the Earth and part from the remaining impacting planet. So the chemistry of the moon rocks would be expected to be quite different from that for the Earth rocks. And while it's true that the moon is deficient in some Earth elements, there are also uh, shared elements that have um, very similar properties. Now... Elements can come in different forms that we call isotopes. For example, we know that we often talk about carbon-14 dating. Well, 
Carbon-14 is an isotope of carbon that has an atomic weight of, of 14 because it has the extra neutrons in the nucleus, whereas the common, most common form of carbon is the isotope carbon-12, uh, which has the six uh, neutrons in the, in the nucleus. So the isotope is, a, is an element that has a different weight. So elements are defined by the number of protons in the nucleus, um, but they can have different numbers of neutrons, which gives them different atomic weight. And so these are the different um, is isotopes. And um, one of the fascinating signatures is that the isotope ratios of elements like oxygen, iron, hydrogen, silica, magnesium, titanium, potassium, tungsten, chromium, are almost identical on the moon to earth rocks. At the same time, they're very different from the ratios we observe from spectra on other solar system bodies. And this is a real major problem for the impact uh, theory. And so essentially the impact theory is um, in crisis. And this was uh, uh, actually, I mean, this research came out a few years ago now uh, some of the original uh, research or the summary was published in Na uh, National Geoscience, um, Volume 6, uh, in 2013, pages 996 to 998. And uh, the title for the article, if anyone wants to Google it, is Occam's Origin of the Moon. That's in Nat Geoscience, uh, Volume 6, 2013, Occam's Origin of the Moon. Uh, the, the author was Elkins uh, Tanton, and he looks at a lot of this data um, in detail. Another paper, and it's interesting, um, that evolutionists have got major uh, problem uh, with the trying to understand the origin of the moon. Uh, matter of fact, another paper that was published just two years ago, uh, 2017, in, uh, in Nat Geoscience, um, was, uh, the title of that paper was A Multiple Impact Origin for the Moon. So A Multiple Impact Origin for the Moon. And uh, that was by a, a, a leading planetary scientist, Professor Oded uh, Ronson. And um, it's interesting, he starts the, uh, the paper with... Uh, the moon's origin remains enigmatic. In other words, it's a, a major problem. One of the major problems is, of course, the, um, the angular momentum of the moon. Now, angular momentum is the um, momentum as a result of an object spinning. So if we all know that um, if you're driving along on your car and you sort of push the clutch in on the car, say, as you're coming up to a traffic light read to change gear, the car keeps going, even though you've got your foot off the accelerator and, um, and, you're, and you're wanting to slow down you put your, um, and you put your foot on the clutch, the car will still roll. And that's due to its momentum. In other words, it's the uh, energy that's uh, carrying continues to carry along and that's one of the laws that every object can you know continues um, unless it's acted upon by an external force and we apply the external force of a brake to, to slow it down or else there's air resistance or tire resistance which are forces 
And it's the same as something rotates as well. And I know this is one of the, one of the things I uh, enjoy with my children. Um, there's a little mini merry-go-round. And I explained to my children that um, if you hop on this thing and you spin it really fast while you're standing close to the centre pole, and then as you move out, it, it slows down. And then as you come into the centre, it speeds up again. And so this is, um, of course, the angular momentum. And one of the things that we observe is, the, and of course, the faster an object moves, the greater it's, uh, or faster it rotates, the greater uh, angular momentum that it has. And, of course, we can calculate the angular momentum of uh, the Earth together with its moon. And one of the things is that any explanation for the origin has to explain these origins because, and this is where the condensation theory fails, because when we compare other planets in our solar system the, um, and their moons, the Earth-Moon system has too much angular momentum. We've got a lot more angular momentum. Similarly, the fission theory, where the theory where you know a blob spun off the Earth, uh, fails because it has too little angular momentum. Um, and so uh, the Earth you know, doesn't have enough angular momentum for the Earth to be finished spinning that fast. The impact theory also fails because the impact scenarios, um, which attempt to you know, explain the origin of the, the moon by impact, um, again, result would result in too much angular momentum, more angular momentum that we measure. So, um, and that was, um, uh, again, uh, came out in that uh, paper that was published in uh, Nat Geoscience 2017. And so, again, it's fascinating that when we look at the evidence out there, there's powerful evidence that the moon was created, special to provide this uh, purpose and at, at just the right size too and just the right uh, uh, position for us to observe lunar eclipses. It's interesting, I was reading a, an article about a, um, a new book uh, that has come out by a, um, a Christian um, satellite uh, engineer Dr. Henry Reichter, R-I-C-H-T-E-R. And he was actually the development manager of Explorer 1, America's first satellite uh, that was put up um, in the 1950s. And he's actually put out a book called Spacecraft Earth, A Guide for Passengers. And this book, um, as I said, the title of his book is Spacecraft Earth, A Guide for Passengers. And uh, his, his um, name is um, Dr. Henry Reichter, R-I-C-H-T-E-R. And um, it, it's a Christian book. It's overtly uh, Christian. And um, in it, he talks about the evidence for intelligent design in our solar system and in our uh, universe. And he worked at the uh, JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in the United States, uh, one of the top uh, research laboratories in terms of uh, space exploration and uh, this sort of thing. And um, you know, one of the things that he, he points out is that um, you know, the research that they did early on, they discovered um, 
the very high energy uh, radiation belts, uh, these ultra high energy uh, electron type particles that um, are coming. And of course, the role of the Earth's magnetic field uh, to protect us from these really um, dangerous high energy particles in the solar wind um, that uh, stream out of the sun. And uh, so the, the role, the important role of the strength of the Earth's magnetic field. And then, of course, um, the, he looked talking about the Earth now. Uh, in, in his book, he uh, talks about how the, uh, the atmosphere of the Earth protects us from the cosmic rays uh, and the Earth's magnetic field, of course, protects us from cosmic rays. Um, and then the atmosphere also shields us um, from the... Um, helps burn up uh, the small meteorites and these sort of things that are coming into uh, to Earth. And there are, there are, it points out, too, that there are cycles in the elements. I, I wasn't actually aware of this, but the Earth or cycles... Uh, many uh, necessary elements. Well, I knew about carbon and nitrogen, but I didn't realise that iron and oxygen, even bromine, were uh, cycled. And uh, without this, um, there would be uh, no uh, animals. And that was uh, some interesting work on that um, that he uh, reports in his uh, in his book. He talks about the evidence for a young Earth. And, a, and correspondingly a, a young moon as well. One of the important areas of that is the work on the um, Earth's decaying Earth's magnetic field. A lot of work was done by that um, by uh, Professor Thomas Barnes, who's emeritus professor of physics at the University of Texas, El Paso. And um, he did a lot of work showing that the implications of the the Earth's magnetic field are very important in preserving light, life. And, of course, the evidence from its decay rate uh, again shows that the Earth uh, cannot be um, you know, very old. The other thing that Dr. Richard points out is, of course, the habitable zone uh, for stars. So he's done a lot of work on the star area and how the habitable zone for a planet around a star is... Um, it's very critical. Uh, one of them, and one of the important things is that uh, the planet must not be locked in to a star by tidal forces, because when this happens, what it means is that the star always, uh, the planet would always face the star the same way. So you're going to have, you know, huge uh, temperatures on one side, very hot one side, and very cold the other side. So that greatly reduces the area that. Uh, life could uh, provide on. The other factor is the um, the planet must have a nearly circular orbit around the star so that the temperature range stays just in the range that allows liquid water to uh, be there. And again, this is one of the one of you know a dozen or so factors that Dr. Reicher points out in his book that. Um, are essential for life to exist and how unique our Earth-Moon system is. Um, and we know from you know, observations that very, very few planets could actually meet this, um, 
system. Um, very, most of the planetary systems discovered by the Kepler place, spacecraft look nothing like our solar system. Uh, many of them have really large hot Jupiters or the giant gas planets orbiting close to the star or they have planets in highly eccentric uh, orbits. And um, it's interesting too, um, one of the things in his book that um, he points out is that the most stars don't actually permit habitable zones because, you know, the hot blue stars give off far too much ionising radiation and the cool red dwarf stars, which are the most uh, numerous, it would seem, in the universe, they tend to totally tidally lock their planets. And um, also these red-type stars produce deadly super flares that would tend to fry from time to time, planets in the uh, habitable zone. So it points out our sun is actually one of the quietest uh, stars that we observe. Only 0.06% variation in energy reaching the Earth over a, a measurement period of about 32 years where they studied, and that was some, uh, you know, it's very interesting studies that they're doing there. So we have so much evidence that the moon and the earth have been, um, you know, uh, created. Um, the, uh, another uh, book has also been um, uh, published. Um, it's called, um, and this is by a cosmologist from the University of Sydney, it's called a Fortunate Universe, Life in a Finely Tuned uh, Cosmos. And uh, that's been published recently, 2016, by Cambridge University Press. And um, that's Durant uh, Lewis there. So, again, we are finding more and more evidence for a really specially created universe and planetary system, our Earth, seems to be in just the right spot to observe the universe. You know, we're in a special part where we seem to be in a position to observe most of the of the universe. And this, I find, is really, really exciting because quite clearly God revealed that he created the universe. He stretched the heavens out. And the Bible talks about uh, this very clearly. Well, I get really excited about this information and about the fact that science is confirming so much that the universe is so special in the way it is and particularly our planet that we must have been created. The, it just couldn't arise by chance. And as science recognises this, I'm just so passionate, this needs to get out to people that we have this evidence that we were created and by a loving God, and that's what the Bible tells us too. And remember, by um, going on to the internet and Googling 3abnaustralia.org.au and click on the Listen button, you can listen to these programs and get the references and check them out for yourselves. I'm Dr. John Ashton. Have a great day.
You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.